This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. Not every guest takes me up on the opportunity, but I like to do a segment called The Mic Swap, where I make my guest into the host, and then I become the guest. I let them take the conversation wherever they want to take it, ask me whatever they want, and uh, it's a lot of fun, I think. This is Mic Swap. Welcome to Shareable. I am Jeffrey Klein, your host, and today I've got the mic swap, and my guest is Jeff Gibbard, who's a real-life superhero, as well as the world's most handsome business strategist. Now, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I've uh, really been excited to be on Shareable for some time now. Yeah, I know, and it's I've been excited to have you. Uh, and I'm going to contextualize this show for you with nine questions. I, you know, I'm all about nine dots, and so we're going to try and connect the dots for Jeff Gibbard with these nine questions. Okay. And the first one's a bit—they're all fun, and and I think it'll give us some insight into you and the way you think. And that's my goal is to see what makes you tick. So let's start with the first one. This is: if you had a song play every time you entered a room, what song would it be? So the the so I'm gonna go with my gut answer, um, but if I really I thought about it, I would probably choose something different. But I would probably pick DJ Khaled's "All I Do Is Win" because it would need to be something that's just a touch obnoxious and a little too cocky swagger, but mm. enough so being that little bit too much that people could tell that it's done in jest. So I get from that, you know that you want to joke around is humor been something that's always been really important to you? Um, I think because I was a fat kid, um, I used humor and um, being like the class clown as kind of like my way to connect with people. Um, and I always made my parents laugh when I was a kid. I used to imitate movies that we would watch and everything. And I loved watching my parents crack up. So humor has definitely always been a way that I could immediately validate Um you know, a relationship with someone that like, oh, they're getting something out of this relationship. It, it caused some backlash for me personally, like some inner turmoil in my teen years. But um, I, it has always been something that's important to me. And, and I feel like it is a reminder not to take myself or anything too seriously that, you know, life is really serious. And there's a lot of darkness out there that like humor is like the thing that allows us to kind of brighten it up. And um, so, yeah, that's definitely a part of it for me. Uh, that, that, so now you're a grown up and you're the world. Let's not go that handsome. far. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now you are of age. How's that? You're That's over better. 18. Yeah. Uh, you've been in business for a year or two. Um, and you are the world's most handsome business strategist. So you're no longer that fat kid. So how has humor been different as you've matured a tiny bit? Um, I think it's, there's sort of the same DNA as when I was younger in it's just, I think, um, I think it's matured a bit, but I, I think humor in my earlier years and, and even till still to this day is a little bit of a, um, it's a challenge of status quo to a certain extent. Like I feel like humor is designed to kind of um, break formality and I find formality very uncomfortable. I find rules very uncomfortable and I find that humor is the perfect thing to kind of push rules, touch, you know, push against boundaries. I'm a boundary pusher. So for me, humor is one of those things where it allows everyone to relax a bit. Um, so like, I'm definitely the one that's willing to go first 
and break things down just a bit so that everybody else can feel comfortable. I'm willing, like, I don't embarrass easily. So for me, I can use that, um, that self-confidence and self-assuredness to help other people feel comfortable. So that's that. kind and of you- more how I've used it in my adult life. And, and as a speaker, I find that it's one of the best ways to keep people engaged. You know, mm-hmm. if you make them laugh sometime in the middle of your talk, you know, I think you're going to get through to them better. I think there's some science behind that, but I don't know. it. I'm sure there is science behind it. I also think it's, you know, in terms of that validation piece, you know, I think it's um, getting someone to making someone laugh is, is, is so rewarding because it's a win-win. Yeah. And how it's, you know, you feel good about it and they feel good about it. And uh, I guess there's a, an element of humor that can be hurtful. Uh, not that any of the kinds that you would ever use. Um, but there is an element of people, the difference between being funny and making fun of someone. Um, how do you deal with people who don't know that distinction? Um, I mean, honestly, I have a lot of understanding for it, like a lot of empathy for people that do that, because I think people who make fun of other people have some hurt inside of them that they are expressing and living through. And there's definitely been periods throughout my life that I made fun of people um, for a variety of different reasons that I look back on with regret and, and some some uh, semblance of shame about. But I realized that it was during a time in my life where maybe I was going through something and, and I was using that as a crutch to not deal with what I had to deal with. And I think that the more you become assured of yourself and your place in this world and your respect for other people, you gravitate away from trying to do any sort of harm to people, especially using humor. Um, I, I think there's making fun of people in good fun, but both parties have to be in on it. So there's a certain consent there that has to happen. It's like, if you sit in the front stage of a comedy show, like you are consenting to be part of crowd work. So like right. that was your choice, right? Sit in the back if you don't want to be dealt with or don't heckle. But I think in, in life, like, you know, if, if you make fun, if you are made fun of without your being in on the joke, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's unfortunate, but I, I've noticed in my life, like most of um, the friendships I've had with other men have tended to be, uh, there's been a lot more of that, like, you know, uh, jabbing at one another and making fun of one another. And like, it's just a way that guys tend to socialize and, and connect with one another. And I've never really been particularly comfortable with that. I, I play along, but like, it's not really my thing. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I've tended to be friends with women throughout my life a lot more. And again, I'm not trying to generalize that like all men are this way or all women are that way. I've just found in my experience that I've been able to have deeper, more enriching and interesting conversations with women. And we can laugh about things that aren't at anyone's expense. Whereas with dudes, it's, it's kind of like you just rip on each other and that's part of the thing. And, you know, sometimes you hit somebody in their soft spot, you know, like you know, somebody yeah. who struggled with their weight as a kid, like somebody makes a fat joke at me. I'm like, <laughs> that stung cut a little deep. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate the, the question. I think just to, to summarize the answers, I, I think I, I try to extend a little grace to those people that make fun of others and realize that they're coming from a place of hurt. It doesn't excuse them, but it's just mm-hmm. more like, that's kind of what runs through my head is like, a, Ooh, you need a hug probably. Right. Yeah. Then I'll use a hug. Yeah. Uh, and I, I totally, totally agree that oftentimes when people are being, whether it's critical or hurtful, it's, something on their end. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some insecurity. Um, I want to shift, you know, this is a show about people and technology. So I have a question for you about technology. So what 
current technology that didn't exist when you were a kid, do you think that your nine-year-old self would be most excited about knowing what's coming? Video games, 1,010% video games. Like I have a PlayStation 5, uh, which yeah, you can be jealous if you're listening. Um, but I, I bought it off Craigslist, so I paid too much for it. But the point is, this the fact that I can swing around a virtual city as Spider-Man for hours on end and then like go into a fight of like 10 different gang members and save an innocent person using webs and backflips. It's like, if I could tell my nine-year-old self that that exists, like my nine-year-old self wouldn't even believe me, but like there's not a technology out there that I can think of that nine-year-old me would think is cooler than that because I've always been into video games, but like where we are going with stuff is just bananas. Yeah, I look at some of the graphics of, of the game. I mean, you know, my, my son's a huge Xbox fan and, you know, he plays NBA 2K and to see the players and you're like, they not only look like them, they move. And they, like, yes. It, it's, uh, I saw um, a little behind the scenes about how they do it and they actually travel around and have Ocean people geared up. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's insane and amazing. So I um, love old video games. So I have a system where I can play like Sega Genesis from like the 90s and- you know, like you look at them and they're just like these pixelated messes of, of nondescript mm -hmm. people. Like there's no any, and again, yeah, you look at these, like I, I play uh, NBA 2K as well. And um, you, you look at the way that they like swagger up the quarter, what they do after like a foul or something. And you're like, holy, that is exactly like James Harden. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the, the ability to represent reality in that world is insane and yeah, and it's, uh, it's 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 but i you know i grew up playing a game there was a pc game i loved called one-on-one -on -one, dr j versus larry bird that i had oh yeah um now i'm sure the graphics i what i want them to do is take that game and then recreate it with the technology they have today so i could uh dunk on larry bird maybe that's just my own desire no i think about that all the time i i think i want the the technology that's like one or two leaps from here where basically like you can it's sort of like the MakerBot technology where like you could basically if you have the schematics you could like basically print anything i want to be able to deep fake myself into every spider-man movie and be peter parker and spider-man like i want there's a bunch of old video games that i want to be able to just say like can you just make this and for like you know, PS 10 or whatever. Um, so like, there's like a bunch of old games that like, I just absolutely love. And I'm like, just make them awesome graphics and give me the exact same with the same controls and everything, just better graphics. So was there one particular game as a kid that you were just obsessed with? NHL 95 is my obsession and it probably will be for, I literally bought uh, like a $200 uh, like emulator box that it runs on a so Raspberry Pi and all of these controllers. So I could play that one as 30,000 games on it. The only game that I basically play aside from friends come over is NHL 95. And I have like three different seasons running and I have like, it's a whole thing and I still love it. It's still so much fun. Uh, I want to ask a question that I, I came across a question. I thought this was a really interesting question to ask you or anyone, but um, what is something you believe that most people don't? Something I believe that most people don't. Ooh. It's a mind of a mind bender right now. You know, I, I, I think on the one hand, there's, I don't think I actually would have an actual answer to it because I don't believe that I'm all that different from other people. I think part of what is at the core of me is that I believe like, we're all pretty similar. We have some slightly differing beliefs on things and 
Like, but, but I think anything that I've thought of, anything that I believe, any idea I've had, I think somebody else out there has probably also had. So to a certain extent, I think just from the law of large numbers and like, you know, statistical probabilities of things, like I think there's probably not anything that I believe that nobody else does. That said, there are some things that I think that are, I think probably more uncommon. Um, maybe it's just perception, but like, um, you know, one thing, for instance, I, I think, um, No, no, I'm thinking about it. I don't know if I, it's all that uncommon. Well, let me, let me ask you it a different way. I think that, that, cause I, I, it is hard to think. Yeah. Um, but what's something you believe in more than most? Um, I definitely believe in the, the potential and capacity of human beings. Like, and, and I think, and this is one that I'm confident in saying, I believe in this more than other people, because I think a lot of people don't even believe in their own capacity, let alone like the, the kind of like the, the, the aggregate of people. Like I, I believe that we human beings are like, we are capable of such extraordinary feats of, in, of uh, intelligence and ingenuity and engineering and uh, athleticism and like all these things that just seem completely impossible. Like here, I'll give you a really good example. This, actually, this might answer the, the previous question you asked me. I don't believe that people, that anybody has ever run a marathon. It's sort of like there are people who don't believe that pigeon, pigeons are their baby pigeons. You know what I mean? Like, I don't believe anyone's ever run a marathon. Because to me, the idea of running that distance seems completely counter. Like, it doesn't seem like it should be possible. So people are like, oh, yeah, I ran a marathon. I'm like, you're lying. So, um, but that said, I also believe that people, like the fact that we have Ironmans and, and super marathoners and we've, we've set foot on the moon and we like, how does a cell phone work? Like, how does if if like everything fell apart and you had to rebuild an iphone from scratch could you do no no we couldn't this is like a thousand and one years of ingenuity that just got packed into one little rectangle so i guess i am simultaneously amazed at what we are capable of and what we could do and i believe that we are capable of but i tend to believe that most people most more than 70 percent maybe more than 90 percent of people have absolutely no clue what they are capable of. They don't believe that they're capable of, of, you know, substantially more than they currently do. Um, they don't believe that there's a path to it. Um, and, and I think to a certain extent, we've, we have a structure and a system that makes it very difficult for people. But I think by and large, the little voice in people's head that tells them that they can't is more believed than the voice in their head that tells them they can do extraordinary things. It's interesting, just as a cultural um, side note, I lived in England for 10 years, and I think that's more true in England than in America. Yeah, I would agree with that. uh, America is the land of quote-unquote possibility, and although it's not embraced by everyone, as a culture, the idea of success and the idea of the American dream and all those things is ingrained in us in a way that in other places it's not. That's true. Um, But I would also say the counter to that is that in the United States, I think more people think that they are better at things than they actually are. It's the Dunning-Kruger, right? Like I think in America, everyone's like, it's a land of possibility. We can do anything. And I'm just like one, one new job away from being a millionaire. No, you're not. You are extremely average right now. And to actually get to your potential, you would have to do a lot more work than you're currently doing. Yeah. There's a bit of a dichotomy there. I'll I'll agree with that. Yeah. Like there's Um, something there. Well, let's talk about human potential and and you, Jeff. So here's my question. If you were going to be an Olympic gold medalist, what would the event be? And not a sport, but what event? You know, Jeff 
Gibbard, the Olympic gold medalist in. Um, NHL 95. No, that's not <laughs> I think at this point I might be the best player in the world because I don't think anybody's still playing it. Um, you know, like um, someone on a, I think it was on a podcast recently. It was either on the podcast or it was immediately after we stopped. Someone said to me that my superpower is bringing out the best in people is helping them see the best in themselves and believing that they're capable of achieving it. It's like, it, it's, it's like an effortless boosting people up. And, you know, part of me would want to say like something like charm or charisma or something like that. But I think that that's sort of a sub function of the skill that I'm actually talking about, which is like, I, I think my ability to see greatness in people would be my gold medal talent. Um, but I think that my Achilles heel injury that I would get along the way is <laughs> that's uh, I, I, I think I also have a, a short temper for people who are uh, like rude or condescending or so like that for most people I can, but like, there's just a certain trigger with certain people where I'd be like, you know what? No, I'm not going to see the greatness in you. I'm walking away. So I, I, guess I, don't, anyway. I don't know. I think maybe that's my gold medal. I don't know. I also make right. really, really good fried chicken. So I think I would be willing to go toe to toe with people on a fried chicken competition. All right. I like that. Yeah. It's buttermilk. Jeff Gibbard, Olympic gold medalist in fried chicken. Yeah. Like that's pretty dynamite. Okay. So you, we both love movies. I, I like this question. I don't know why, but who would you want to play you in the movie of your life? Hmm. <laughs> my initial gut reaction is to say a bunch of people that would make absolutely no sense. So like, it would be like a, a Dane, Judy Dench, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, um, you I know, uh, the, the dude who played Gandalf. Um, so like it would, it would, my initial gut reaction would be say someone ridiculous, but it, man, if I had to have somebody like actually play me in a movie, you know, I probably would like my, the first thing that came to my head after like the silly answers was probably Tom Holland. Um, mm. because he, uh, nothing to do with the Spider-Man of it all. Well, I think that's part of why it initially jumped <laughs> to my head. I was like, well, then people sure. like through the transitive property, like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, like I'm basically <laughs> Spider-Man. Right. You know what I mean? Like the same okay. dude that played Spider-Man played Jeff. It's, you know, it's sort of like when you see an actor that you, there's like iconic for a particular role, play something different. You're like, hey, I really can't see you as anything else. Mm. So you've worked in social media a long time and worked in content. And this is the shareable podcast. So what makes content really shareable? So I could give you like the, uh, the Jonah Berger contagious answer. I could give you like, you know, the, the Robert Cialdini influence, you know, uh, factors and all. I guess I would just say like, it's going to be different for each person and why. But I, I think that, I think you pass along content primarily because there's some benefit to you personally, right? So like I'm thinking of the different groups that I'm friends with, right? So like I share content with one of my group texts because it's something that we share similar politics. It's something we all might find funny. It's something that might trigger a discussion that we could all get into that's intellectual and thought provoking and, and helps all of us grow. I have another one where it's just a bunch of savages and like we just send the most ridiculous things possible to try and like get a rise out of each other. 
And then, you know, I've got other people where it's like, I would, like I send stuff to my wife because it's cute. Like if it's a puppy or a unicorn or flowers or something like that, like it, I send her things that are cute because I want to make her smile in the middle. So like, but so all of that I think is in service simultaneously of the people you send it to and in service of yourself. Like you want the reaction from them of having given them a gift that is worthy of their attention, praise, whatever. So like with, with my group of savages, the goal is to get them to go, yeah, that one was funny. Good one. Right. So like that for me is the validation. Like, oh, I got them at the same time, like for them to laugh, like I want them to laugh. So I think that what makes something shareable is that it's got something of value. It could be something that's funny. It could be something that's educational in this, in the infotainment space, I guess, like it's either informational or entertaining or both but it's got to be one of those. And then, you know, then there's always like the awe, the shock, the this, that, but like there's all the different categories, but at the end of it, it comes down to you want a reaction out of someone else that validates something in you that in some way enriches the relationship with those people. And I think that the sharing it in the more social context of social media, like the sharing it to the many is because it is another entry in the brand of you. I share mm -hmm. these sorts of things. Like I share mm -hmm. long form intellectual content about content, right? Or I share, like in your case, you share stuff about storytelling. Why? Because storytelling is part of your brand and you want to help people mm -hmm. get better at that. And that's your thing, right? I share stuff on leadership because I want more leaders out in the world. And I'm particularly interested in leadership. And by sharing leadership content, people are like, oh, this guy's interested in leadership, right? So like, I, I think at its core, that's what it all really comes down to is- you know, some it, sort of a reaction and a validation. Yeah. And I think, again, what I took from that, that aligns with my kind of worldview, which is it's valuable content that's meaningful to a particular audience. Yes. And so I think, again, it's about that audience because if it's, you can share the same piece of content to two different groups and one's going to love it and one's going to be, eh? you oh know, yeah. I think, again, so it's, it's really about finding that sweet spot of things that you have in common that you both go, yeah, that is funny. You know, yeah. I mean, the stuff I send to my group of savages is not the stuff that makes my wife laugh. She's like, I don't get it. Also, that's kind of weird. So right. yeah, it's very audience dependent. Um, and when it's one to many, I think it's your, you have an audience in mind that you want to see you a certain way or that mm -hmm. you want to serve and give value to in a certain way. All right. I'm going to shift back to technology. Okay. Ultimately, so when you fill in the blank, mm -hmm. ultimately, technology will destroy us. <laughs> Do you believe that? No, I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe. <laughs> you think so, the robots will take over and it'll be Terminator kind of? I mean, technology, I, I think for as much as technology is doing wonderful, amazing things in the world, and I think a lot of the things... I would say half the things that technology does well and, and is like improving the world are things that technology initially destroyed in the first place, right? So I think that the net, if you, if you take the net of all of the technology, it's net negative. It is net negative environmentally. It's net negative socially. It's net negative in, in just so many different ways. And I think ultimately- Aside from NHL- Except for NHL 95, which gets a pass in my book. Um, but but I, I look at it and I think- Somebody has to write these algorithms. Somebody creates these programs. Somebody builds this hardware. And all told, we're net negative on the whole thing. And I don't see it getting better. And I don't see us 
turning the corner with technology enough to undo the harm that we've already done through technological progress. The Industrial Revolution basically put us on this path of cat catastrophic climate change. And while, yeah, we, we have a higher standard of living, and you can see behind me, I have a giant TV, uh, and I you know always have the latest iPhone and all those things, um, I, I still think it is a net negative in the world. And I think if you continue playing out on the, on the slope that we're on, uh, it is undoubtedly going to destroy us in one way or another. There will be things about it that will help us. In fact, there, once it destroys us, there will be technology we will need to rely on to save us. But like, by and large, technology will destroy us. And that's my optimistic view. I was like, that's so sad. All right, well, <laughs> I'm going to shift to a, a silly question that can only be asked of you. So here it is. According to Jeff Gibberg, who is the most handsome man in all of history? Most handsome man in all of history? We'll say most handsome, famous person. So famous man. So, you know, I don't know what Ben Franklin is, you know, your cup of tea, but you purport to be, you know, the world's most handsome business strategist. So you must know about what being handsome entails. Yeah. So who's the most handsome man in history? I mean, I, the first name that jumped to mind, I've been, I've been trying to think who can I put in the running for the finals here with this guy. Okay. Um, but, it, but I cannot think of anybody who could actually be in the running with, with this gentleman. I think David Beckham is easily the most handsome human being that I've ever seen in any pictures of anything anywhere. Um, I can think of several other men that like, I think, um, 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 oh God, what's his name? Uh, played, uh, played Killmonger, uh, Michael B. Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, exceptionally handsome, right? Like top, top five for sure. This is like right. definitely the weirdest mic swap I've ever had. Um, <laughs> but I, I would say those two, I mean, obviously Brad Pitt, that's a classic answer. Um, I'm thinking of people from like going way back. See, I'm not Can into like the, I'm not into the old school dudes. Like I'm not into the style. Like I, I just feel like you got to look forward in life, man. You got to right. look forward. Fair enough. You know, I'm just thinking, you know, if we looked at, you know, here's the challenge for you. I want you to go and find uh, the the graphic of all the U.S. presidents, so we can definitively say who the most handsome U.S. president is. The most handsome so U.S. You, president was. Yeah, I'm not saying you have to answer now, but at some point you need to go find that out. I mean, Just I think I, well, there's paintings and portraits at a certain point. And there's no photographs, so I think we have to go from like the photograph era on. Okay. I mean, I, I feel like John F. Kennedy would probably be up there, right? I mean, he was one of the yeah. younger ones. I mean, that's part of the other thing is like. You're comparing like, you know, a dude in his what 40s at the time with like mostly dudes in their 60s and 70s. So well, I don't some know. Some people age well. Some, some people, people do. Well. Some people got that whole silver fox thing going on. So I don't know. I don't know, man. Maybe I you're right. got the silver part going on. So all right. My last question for you, Mr. <laughs> Gibbard. Um, if you could be credited with inventing something, what would it be and why? Does is this hold on? We I need a clarifying question. Yep. Is this something that exists or not? Up to you. It so I could I could that, invent something and then yep, that doesn't currently exist and then now it does. Um so I'll give you an example. Time travel. I was gonna say time travel is a good one, but I was thinking about time travel initially. But then I thought of all the various implications of that. And and right. I think if I was gonna invent anything, I would want to invent like the uh the warp drive 
that ideally would be like powered by clean fusion. So like I would want to end energy scarcity um, on the planet and, uh, you know, just completely obliterate the need for fossil fuels like overnight. Uh, and then at the same time, have something that's capable of allowing us to explore distant galaxies, uh, preferably one that has planets that are less hostile to life than Mars. Love it. Well, Jeff, this has been a great episode that I knew may have gone some strange places, but I, I'm okay with that um, because it's always a good conversation. And there's plenty of nuggets in here that people, you know, what can they do with it? They can share it with people because this episode is shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy shareable, and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing. You see, Shareable is just one of many projects that I'm working on at any given time. I've got another podcast called Rogue. I do a live streaming show every week called The Heroic Council. I've got a blog where I release a blog post twice a week. And if you're looking to keep up with all sorts of different content that can help you grow and become a superhero in life, I want you to check out jeffgibber.me. That's where I list all of my current projects and projects that are coming up in the future, including my forthcoming book, The Lovable Leader. It would mean a lot to me if you could go and check out some of the other things I've worked on because I put just as much of my heart into those projects as I do into Shareable. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of Shareable.